Hello, listeners. Before we begin, some brief content warnings. This episode contains profanity, explicit discussion of violence and death, including the deaths of children, general mentions of sex and sexuality, explicit discussion of sexual violence, and discussion of racism, including racist stereotypes and brief mentions of lynching. If any of these are topics that will bother you, please take care of yourself while listening to this episode and don't hesitate to fast forward. And now, here we go. Welcome to Classically Trained, a podcast where we talk about media that tries its very hardest to depict the ancient Mediterranean world, its peoples, and its stories. I'm Julia, a Greek literature specialist and linguist-ish. And I'm Allison, a uh, classical archaeologist slash late antique studying person. We do our best. (laughs) This week, we're going to be discussing episodes two and three of Troy, Fall of a City, the 2018 Netflix original miniseries. We did episode one two weeks ago, and we're continuing on to get through with this. For some reason, we've decided to torture ourselves. Yeah, you know, I'll summarize these episodes and then we'll get into it. (laughs) Uh, So... Episodes two and three of Troy, Fall of a City, bring us from Helen's departure from Sparta all the way to the end of the first year of the Trojan War. After Helen comes to Troy, the Greeks outraged mass their forces. Agamemnon is forced to sacrifice his daughter to Artemis in order to soothe the goddess's wrath and bring them all to the Trojan shores. Meanwhile, in Troy, they hope for a diplomatic solution, but hopes are dashed when the Greek delegation makes demands beyond just Helen's return, uh, enough that satisfying those demands would beggar Troy. In response, the war begins, and both sides rapidly begin to realize that this is the beginning of a long campaign. This realization particularly damages Trojan morale. In episode three, Hector and Paris decide to seek aid from uh, Cilicia. Cilicia? I think it's technically Cilicia, but they say Cilicia the entire time. Right. We'll go with Cilicia. Hector and Paris seek aid from Cilicia in establishing supply lines past the Greek siege. And meanwhile, Achilles infiltrates Troy, but ultimately decides not to kidnap Helen back to the Greek side. And that's basically where episode three ends. Did I miss anything important? I don't think so. Okay. Would I remember if you did? Probably not. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. We'll get to it if I did forget anything major. So, as usual, I think we should start with the important uh, question. Uh, Did we we like these episodes? See, I'm like very 50-50. I liked certain parts of the episodes, but if I had to give a yes or a no, I'd have to go with no. (laughs) Yeah, this one's hard to judge because compared to the first episode, I liked these so much more in that they didn't make me actively infuriated every second that we were watching. Mm -hmm. But they're still not good. Like, it's still bad television. (laughs) No, it's still like, I mean, there are some parts that are good. Most of it is like passable, and then there are a lot of parts that are like actively terrible. Let's get into it. Uh, No reason to delay (laughs) sharing our opinions here. Where should we start? Maybe with the easy stuff? What's the easy stuff? I would say the easy stuff is like the one comment I have about the continuing issues with the costuming, which is that they're still bad. We talked about this a bunch in the last episode. But Helen is visibly wearing nail polish at one point, and that made me really angry, so I wanted to mention it. It also didn't look like it it was applied very well. Like, maybe the actress was just already wearing nail polish and they just didn't take it off. Like, that's kind of what it looked like. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. The only the other costuming thing I wanted to mention briefly was that we do get an appearance from a guy who is wearing what looks like a Phrygian cap, which is like the one nod that they've ever made to anything like historicism in their costuming. Oh, yes, I did see that. I mean, they do do nods to historicism, but it's like very incredibly like Roman. Like they're all wearing like Roman tunics and it's like, 
why okay yeah i guess this is a decision (laughs) anyway i i noticed it and i was like not only is this vaguely historically accurate but it's also like geographically historically accurate like it's the right region as well as kind of historically correct ish although wrong time period i I mean yeah still wrong time. (laughs) but anyway better than anything else they've done so far yeah that's all i have to say about the costuming I think set decoration is a nice place to move on to from that. Okay, yeah. If we're going to carry on with production for a minute. Yeah. So the set decoration really confuses me because they clearly did some sort of like basic research because they've got all these like very Arthur Evans Mycenaean, sorry, Arthur Evans Minoan stuff. So Arthur Evans was the man who excavated the city of Knossos on Crete, um, which was one of the main cities of the Minoan civilization. And he decided that it would be a great idea to just build what he thought the city looked like on top of the remains. I, it's deeply infuriating. But anyway, they just basically put a bunch of that stuff in there, which again is like geographically just completely incorrect. Um, and then also incorrect because it's Arthur Evans's like fantasy world of what Minoan architecture looks like. And there's also some sort of like late Bronze Age inspired vessels, but also a lot of like classically Greek inspired vessels, which is like a thousand year time difference. So they clearly did some sort of research, but then they just sort of like decided to smash a bunch of random shit together. Like they did a little bit of research, but didn't use it in a way that was like at all interesting or like made logical sense. I have a question for you about one particular item, which was at the very end of episode three, we get a guy like walking around with a lamp. Which I was like, oh yeah, that looks like a Greek lamp that I've seen, but is it... What did the lamp look like? Um, Kind of like flat uh, with like a tapered end and there was like a flame at the end and then it had, it was kind of... Uh, teardrop shaped I guess yeah so a lot of at least Roman lamps look like that I'm honestly not 100% sure if Greek lamps look like that but most ancient lamps have like a central sort of area where you put oil Um, how ancient lamps works is you have yeah the central area where you put some oil in so that's your fuel and then you you would have probably like a wick sticking out the end out of like a sort of tapered bit and sometimes what that looks like is just like a flat circle of clay that somebody has like folded up a little bit and then pinched at one end and sometimes that's more elaborate so I'm not actually a hundred percent sure to like what period they were going for but like yeah ancient lamps do like generally have that shape okay cool but also related to lighting one thing that I will praise them for is all of the interior scenes where there's no natural lighting sources are incredibly dark and that's actually very accurate because when you don't have modern lighting and all you have are like lamps or whatever your interior spaces without natural lighting are going to be really dark so i will praise them for that i think they were also sort of doing it to be atmospheric which works as someone with an old shitty computer monitor and also bad vision it makes it very annoying to watch (laughs) but you are correct that it is both accurate and atmospheric so like i understand why they did it for filmmaking reasons but it's annoying to me as a person who doesn't like watching dark TV. I would really like to talk about Achilles. <laughs> I would also really like to talk about Achilles. I have a lot of things to say about Achilles. So, dear listeners, um, I think it is important context to know that I did my master's dissertation on the characterization of like of Achilles. I, characterization is slightly a strong word, I guess, but because... Homer is really out there, like, characterization hoomst. Um, <laughs> that's sort of how Greek literature works in general. Character tends to be kind of inconsistent to fit the plot, which is, like, fine. People don't really have character traits. It's okay. But Achilles certainly has patterns of behavior that are identifiable and relatively consistent across different things that he's in. And he just doesn't have a personality in this show. And it made me really, really angry, actually, that they just decided that he was going to have no personality at all. The thing that really gets me is that in episode two in particular, which is uh, in, includes the episode of the sacrifice of Iphigenia, which mm-hmm. we will talk about in more detail in a second, they have the opportunity, and in fact, it almost looks like they're going to do it, to have Achilles be involved in that episode and, and have him be a personality. Because in 
Euripides' Iphigenia in Aulis, which is a fifth century tragedy that tells the story of the sacrifice of Iphigenia. Achilles is actually a fairly involved character because as is alluded to in this episode of Trifall of a City, the way that Agamemnon gets Iphigenia to Aulis is under the pretense that she's going to be married to Achilles. And in Fall of a City, Achilles doesn't get told about that at any point. The storytellers, the writers of Fall of a City, just don't even give the opportunity to decide what they want him to do there. Like, they obviously, they could have had him react in any way that they wanted. They could have had him be like, whatever, like, I don't care about you. They could have been like, he gets big mad about it to foreshadow the quarrel with Agamemnon later. Like, because obviously Euripides is writing Achilles getting mad about this, looking back on the quarrel in the Iliad. But they just leave it out completely. They don't do anything with it because they clearly have no interest in giving Achilles any kind of personality. I think he says like one sentence in episode two. Yeah. And it's not anything. But yeah, he like really doesn't have a personality for the most part. And it's very frustrating because like, He is the driving character of the Iliad. And I understand that this show is framed around the Trojans, but like, they're also clearly trying to like do stuff with him. They're trying to like, they create this sort of pre-existing weird tension between him and Hector. They do some like other stuff with him. Between him and Hector or him and Helen? Him and Hector. Yeah, they have like a stare off. They have a stare off. I can't. I yeah. honestly can't. I have deleted that from my brain. Already. Yeah, they have a stare off. So I think they're kind of alluding to the idea that Hector already knows that Achilles is like his martial rival. Yeah. So just for anybody who doesn't know, the main conflict of the Iliad is between Agamemnon and Achilles, and Agamemnon pisses off Achilles, and Achilles refuses to fight. So this is very, 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 very important. And it is specifically important, relevant to what I was just saying about Hector, because basically the only person who is a rival to Hector on the battlefield is Achilles. So when Achilles leaves the battlefield, suddenly the Greeks are getting the shit kicked out of them by Hector and they can't do anything. So yeah, they're clearly making all kinds of nods to that, but nothing foreshadowing the fight between Agamemnon and Achilles, which to me is like way more of a thing in certain ways. And also they just really didn't do Achilles and Patroclus's relationship very much. Well, they're also, it's just kind of upsetting because they really go out of their way to make Achilles incredibly heterosexual. Like they make him have this like weird tension with Helen where there's clearly like some sort of like past like sexual tension going on and at one point he like sort of threatens to sexually assault her Mm -hmm. which is super gross and it's like another thing that's part of the main plot of the Iliad is that Achilles is super gay for Patroclus and loses his fucking mind when Patroclus gets killed that is a very important plot point I will make one, like, I am a Homer scholar note to that, which is actually it's not textual in Homer at all that Achilles and Patroclus are romantically involved or sexually involved. That's something that we get kind of a little bit later. Like, by the time you get to the classical period, there is certainly enough agreement amongst certain people that, like, we're seeing references to it in surviving classical sources that people thought that they were sleeping together. And certainly it's understood that they basically like were soulmates. And even in the Iliad, it's kind of like Patroclus is his alter ego. They are each other's most important person, but they're not romantically or sexually involved in the text of Homer. Yeah. And I think what's what's sort of more important than like, I mean, that's a really good point that, yeah, it's not textual. But what is really important is that they have a really strong and incredibly important relationship to the point that Achilles is like completely destroyed when Patroclus gets killed. Yes. And that just is not at all reflected in the text. And that's a shame because it's like a central plot point and also a really interesting central plot point in the Iliad for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. So it's definitely the fact that they decided to emphasize the fact that he, and I mean, this is canon in the later sources too, that Achilles was one of the kings who competed for Helen's hand or whose name was in the draw, certainly for Helen's hand. 
but he, you know, that he was in competition for her, that he could have been her husband as well. That's the why, that's why he's at Troy. And they decided for some weird reason to just like lean into that. And also to have it be like, oh yeah, he like admires her as like a woman and that she then, that she knows well enough what he thinks of her that she uses it to manipulate him. Yeah, I... Something that I have a question about is, so the show basically says that all of these men, like, fought each other for, yeah. I'm shaking so, my head. Julie is um, shaking her head. Yeah, so because I, I thought that they basically just had a draw for yeah. who would marry Helen. But In fact, and this is like a major, I think I talked about this in the last episode, but like, again, they drew lots for her. It was fair and equal not influenced at all by who was stronger or better or had more resources and training. That was the point that Tendereus, Helen's father, the king of Sparta at the time, did not want to create any further enmity. He did not want there to be any cause for war between all of these Greek kings who were vying for her hand. The whole point was that it was this impartial, absolutely fair draw. And I think we should also note that part of that draw was it okay if anything ever happens to helen all of you have to come to her defense specifically it's if anybody if anybody ever violates the rights of helen's husband to her fidelity huh. you have to come to his defense actually yep. it's not about her it's about the rights of her husband which checks out yeah um yeah and so that's why they're all there yeah that's uh. why they're all there is that they like basically swore an oath and i mean part of it Part of the reason everyone wanted to marry her, obviously, she's the most beautiful woman on earth in the mythology. She's the daughter of Zeus. It's a whole thing. But also, whoever married her became king of Sparta because Tyndareus had no male heirs. Yes. Or, like, he wasn't passing the kingdom um, down to anyone. And that's so. why it's so important that Menelaus gets to marry her because Menelaus is the second son of the king of Mycenae. Mycenae. So he suddenly gets a kingdom because he gets to marry Helen. Yeah. It's really, like, they really just elided a lot of that, or they, they turned it into this big hyper-masculine contest where, because they wanted that to be the subtext of her lot in life, essentially, that it's all just, like, men killing each other over her since mm -hmm. the beginning of time, when that actually was not the case. It was very civilized, like... Yeah, and it's so odd that they make it that Agamemnon, like, won her in battle, but then gave her to Menelaus. Like, yeah. that doesn't make any sense. That's very odd. No, and, um, and I mean, especially since Agamemnon is married to her sister. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's the other thing that doesn't come up at all. Oh, no, it does come up. It comes it up in the first episode. Yeah, they do actually mention that Clytemnestra is married to Agamemnon in the first episode. I'm like... 85% sure. But I, it's like I, it's like a passing mention, yeah. so. But yeah. still, it's like, that's actually a pretty big deal that, like, the two brothers are married to the two sisters, and in fact, it's, like, the younger brother married to the more beautiful sister, and the older brother married to the, like, human sister. Human sister. I also really don't I, you know. like that they've chosen to so directly involve the gods, but they don't mention anybody's divine parentage or that Helen is the most beautiful woman in the world, specifically because of her divine parentage. Like, it's not broadly acknowledged by anybody that Helen is the most beautiful woman in the world. Therefore, when Paris brings up, oh, I took Helen because Aphrodite promised her to me, everybody's like, Okay, whatever. Yeah, because no one really believes him that he was in fact pro that, like, the divine didn't doesn't come into it as far as uh, which is crazy because actually the divine is everything in the setup of this. Yeah, it's it's like very weird that like if you're going to choose to incorporate the divine, that you would ignore Helen's divine parentage. That being like the implied the reason for her beauty. Like I think that's pretty. I'm not familiar specifically with any of the primary sources, but I'm pretty sure that's implied as the reason why she's so beautiful is because her father is Zeus. Certainly why she's so, that she's like superhumanly beautiful and also that she's recognized as the most beautiful woman in the world by everyone. And that she is recognized as the most beautiful woman in the world by everyone. That's like a known thing. Yeah, and it's weird that they, 
Uh, now I'm just thinking of this now. It's weird that they fought for her hand, and yet, like, all of these Greek people fought for her hand, yet nobody recognizes her as the most beautiful woman in the world. That is incredibly confusing that they've included one plot point without the other plot point. Like, narratively, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and, like, maybe they do, but nobody's talking about it, or, like, certainly the Trojans don't seem to recognize that when Paris does, like, mention it. I don't know. I, it's a little weird. Speaking of Helen, let's carry yeah. on with Helen. Mm-hmm. She gives us a delightful little feminism 101 in episode huh. two. I, you know, I look, I have nothing wrong with the statement. And I quote, I'm not a possession. I'm a woman. And I'm here because I want to be fine. If The framing that they want, if the framing they're going for in this story, in this version of the Troy narrative, is that Helen came of her own volition, that she wants to be with Paris, that she is in love with him. Fine. I don't actually have any problem with that. And I also don't have any real issue with, like, heroizing Helen a little bit in the way that they do of having her be kind of a queen for the people and that she's got this kind of democratic mindset in a way not not in the sense that she like doesn't want to be a queen but that she she gives away her grain ration during the siege and stuff like that like i actually don't mind that i don't mind charitable interpretations of her character and of her agency but it just feels so shallow yes I I wrote specifically something about this, uh, that Helen's agency, so Helen's agency doesn't matter at all in the Iliad. What Helen has done, or whether or not, like, she was forcibly taken, or whether she went on purpose, doesn't matter. It's not really talked about, doesn't matter. But their attempts to restore her agency here are entirely based on this forced and unrealistic romance. Like, there's nothing believable about this romance, so it ruins the entire story. Because you don't actually believe that she wants to be there, because her and Paris don't have that much chemistry, and Paris has no apparent redeeming qualities. He's just an asshole. Like, in the same way that Menelaus is an asshole, he keeps trying to, like, force himself on her in the first episode. It doesn't make any sense why she runs away with him. Yeah, I I absolutely would be willing to buy Helen as, like, having all of this agency and wanting to be there. And in fact, to some degree, I do. Honestly, I would almost prefer it if they were trying to sell it as, like, she's pretending to be in love with him and stringing him along because she wanted to be out of Sparta. Like, I would almost buy that more if she were stringing him along for the sake of her own agency, Mm. then that she is genuine. Like, I don't buy that she's genuinely in love with him. No, no, it's just not believable. Again, like, you'd have to make Paris have some sort of redeeming quality. And he doesn't. Which he doesn't. So, like, narratively, it just is, it's just bad. And then it makes all of the other stuff feel incredibly trite. I didn't super love the like scene where she gives grain to the people because it's very Danny and Game of Thrones. Yeah, I mean, this is the other thing is like, I I definitely, I don't really hate them. Tr- like, again, I don't hate them trying to do the whole like man and woman of the, like, like monarchs for the people with Helen and Paris in that Paris is this kind of farm boy and, and Helen is, you know, interested in actually being a good queen and treating her peasants well. But like also, yeah, you're right. It's very, very Game of Thrones in that it's like, this is really like lip service to equality. When in fact, if you were really that interested in treating people well, maybe you should convince your, maybe you should fuck off, first of all. And, like, not have come because you were already the queen of people who probably needed you. And second of all, like, why don't you just convince your new father-in-law to pay out of the gold whatever the hell the Greeks were asking for so that you didn't have to go to war in the first place if you're that interested in protecting the people? Yeah, uh, that that is a very good point. It's all lip service. This is the thing. Yeah. And, like, this is this is what all of this is, is it's very, like... We are going to say a bunch of stuff that just doesn't, it falls kind of flat. Yeah, no, it absolutely falls just like completely flat. Very cringe. Minus 10. Yeah, and I mean, one of the reasons that the Iliad works as the narrative that it is, is because it all exists in this very autocratic, monarchical society. And 
a lot of the the themes and this very like set this this centering of the narrative on these grand heroic figures who are the children of the gods who are you know entangled in the threads of fate etc it all starts to fall a little bit flat when you try to pair it with this like we're all in this togetherness i don't hate like focusing on oh talking about the logistics and the real impact of war like the iliad does do a certain amount of that too but I don't know, like it all starts to feel like you have to kind of do one or the other. I think it starts to feel a little bit flat when it's like all of this is happening because Paris was, you know, promised the most beautiful woman in the world and they have this faded love. And so it's fine to like sacrifice anything for this. But also, oh, no, the cost to the regular person yeah mm-hmm. and I kind of understand like briefly discussing it from like a war logistical standpoint because you don't want a riot in your city in the middle of a siege but yeah it, it's so odd because like the point of the Iliad and also a lot of other Greek texts is basically that humans don't have a lot of agency over their own lives and therefore life is bad and terrible and sometimes you just can't do anything about it. And so to try and make Helen this like, for the people queen, yeah, it really, I agree, it really falls totally flat. Yeah, I, I would also say that I think that there's a certain, there's a certain thing in uh the scene that particular scene that like them doing it in so much detail and then and like having someone step forward and be like we accept you you are helen of troy they just wanted someone to say Ugh. Helen of troy oh yeah i hated that moment so much it's like there's no motivation for that like random peasant to do that yeah like, what why does she have any opinion about this? like why does she care it's like this is like okay you're getting a little bit more grain than you did yesterday like great I guess but that doesn't really explain why this woman is like I am going to stand up for Helen the rich queen yeah it's really annoying I kind of want to talk about Hecuba and her relationship with the other women and the other so specifically the relationships between Helen Hecuba and, and Andromache yeah um I actually really like Hecuba's characterization um mm. and how she's like very kind to Helen and she's trying to get Andromache to be kind to Helen because Hecuba really portrays this thing that it's like of of women being basically shipped off to other cities as brides and having nobody around them. She under she makes clear that she understands that position. At one point she says like, you know, that she, you're not the for, first foreign princess to come to Troy to Helen. Um, and that I think was really nice because it does really hit on something that often, you know, women were shipped off and didn't have any other supports. And the fact that this other woman is trying to make um, Helen feel comfortable and also Andromache feel comfortable, um, I think is really nice. And I I like it a lot in contrast to the fact that Andromache doesn't like Helen and it's not completely rational. Like, you know, she just, Mm -hmm. she doesn't trust her. and, And also that there's this really personal jealousy that Helen had a child and abandoned her and then Andromache is having these like fertility issues. I don't love that as a subplot for Andromache, yeah, I'll be honest. Weird. But it does create a nice kind of interesting tension between these two characters and that Helen is so callous about having left her daughter behind and that she never wanted to be a mother and Andromache desperately wants to be a mother and like can't. It's it's just like an, a nice interesting contrast that creates a genuine sense of like diversity among women in relation to things that affect women yes like that as as much as i find the infertility subplot annoying i do think that it shows that they at least were paying some attention to the fact that these are not just like the woms but that they are <laughs> that they are individual women with mm-hmm. their own like feelings and attitudes and personalities and they actually all seem to have personalities and feelings about things and about their situations and they all mm-hmm. have differing relationships with each other which yeah. is nice and i like the fact that the one thing about helen wanting to run away that actually seems believable is that she was like yeah i was pregnant at 14 i didn't really have any choice or agency in this and then i felt like my daughter was always aligned with my husband who i didn't like very much so that finally made sense as to why 
Helen would leave her child like that finally clicked together um to me something that was like believable um that she was in this really crappy situation that she didn't have any control over um and that she felt really disconnected from her child because of that yeah so thumbs up on that one at least <laughs> they get a partial thumbs up from they get a partial on something to backtrack a little bit to talk about like women some more the the Iphigenia episode is interestingly handled in this show. So this ties into another issue, which is that the pacing in episode two is absolutely fucked. They tell like three or four separate kind of episode, like episodic anecdotes of the lead up and preparation to the Greek departure to Troy within the same 50 minute episode and it just it causes problems and so one of those episodes is the Iphigenia story which if they had taken the time to actually do this episode properly like I think that they could have done a better job of it but yeah so there's there's two things I'm gonna bring up one of them is that in the defense of this Agamemnon's actor fucking sells this oh yeah it's fucked being told that you have to sacrifice your daughter to like you have to kill your own child so that you can go to war and like the thing that odysseus says to agamemnon about how like what the gods want is for you to know this pain so that when you go to troy you will look at the trojans across the battlefield and no amount of suffering that you cause them will will matter. Like, you won't feel sorry for them at all because you will have suffered so terribly. Like, you will have had to give up so much in order to just get here that you're just going to keep going. Like, that's such a... It's such an, an insane emotional demand, and it, it does really get to the heart of some of Agamemnon's more irrational decisions, like, at the end of this episode and into episode three, that, like, he simply is like he's been driven all the way to the edge. He's been forced to do the absolute worst thing. And after that, there's no worse thing that he could do. He just needs to win the war for what he for what he did to be worth it. Yeah, I will say I think that the actress who played Iphigenia did a really good job. And that, yeah, also the actress who plays Odysseus does a really good job in just seeming like a complete callous asshole piece of shit. So yeah. like the emotional dynamics of that scene worked really, really well. And that Wait. was a, one of the things that I probably have enjoyed the most in the show so far was the the emotions that they go through of, of like Agamemnon having to sacrifice his own daughter. Yeah, Clytemnestra's actress does a good job too. Yeah. Um, basically every actor in this show except for Menelaus's actor is good. Uh, Menelaus's actor could be a piece of wood with his lines taped onto it. <laughs> uh, and like an angry face drawn. Yeah. I think, I think it's a real shame too because I think a lot of the actors are do a really good job yeah i don't necessarily love the casting as we've discussed in the last episode for like ethnicity and political reasons but the actors that they had did a good job and it's a shame that half the time they have crap material to work with because i think the casting is like largely pretty good from a standpoint of oh this person makes sense for this character yeah now i will say one negative thing about the way the iphigenia episode is handled which is first of all she goes from, and again, this is related to the pacing and the fact that they didn't have the time of like her talking to Achilles and the whole like figuring out, etc., of like what's going on. She goes from what is going on, oh my God, no, to if this is going to happen, let it be without struggle in like half a second. That shift was so rapid and I was just like, I didn't buy it. So I was okay with the rapid shift from like her realizing what's going on to like utter panic because that makes sense. But then the shift to to, to acceptance. Yeah, didn't yeah. make any sense. No, I, I wish that's... that if they because I honestly don't hate the pacing of this episode because they did have to get through a lot of stuff. So I kind of understand it. But if they were going to do that, they should have just had him hold her down and slit her throat. Yeah. As terrible as that sounds, like, from a, like, story construction point of view, that's what would have made more sense. Um, The other thing is that intercutting the sacrifice of Iphigenia with 
Helen and Paris fucking. Oh my god. So frustrating. That was so upsetting. It was so upsetting. I was so angry. I kind of see that maybe the idea was to be like, you know, why, why is this happening? It's for these two and their fucking shitty romance. But like, it's so upsetting. I hated that decision so much. It's probably the thing that made me the most angry. Yeah, in these it, two episodes. it cheapens the scene so much. And also, just like side note, I just hate watching them fuck because they have no chemistry. No chemistry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so like, aside from the fact that like from an editing decision, it was a terrible decision. Also, just like any sex scene with them is just like unbearable to watch. Yeah. It's just so uncomfortable. Yeah. Now... Related to the pacing in this episode, to move on to something else, I think one of the things that they could have done in, to fix the pacing in this episode to like make more space for some of the other stuff was just to not do the Odysseus's Madness episode. Oh, see, I like the Odysseus's Madness. I do too, but I think that again, they don't give it enough time to actually do it justice. Like, mm-hmm. they don't give it enough time to have it be like. So for the listener, for context, the episode we're talking about, um, Agamemnon summons all of the kings of Greece, all of the the former suitors of Helen to gather at Aulis to sail to Troy. And Odysseus doesn't show up. He's like late. He doesn't respond to the summons. And, you know, obviously Agamemnon isn't happy about this. He sends a guy in this version. It's Diomedes whose name they pronounce Diomedes, which is acceptable, but that's not how I'm going to pronounce it. Oh, see, I always say Diomedes, but I pronounce all names wrong all the time when it comes to Greek shit. It's fine. (laughs) And yeah, like kind of the whole point is that it's been a while. And when the guy shows up, it's like it becomes really obvious really quickly that like this is a ploy on the part of Odysseus to avoid going to war, which in this version it's honestly not that clear that that is his motivation in doing this, that he's trying to avoid the summons. I think that they don't give it enough space to have it be like Agamemnon summoning everyone and everyone showing up. And like even one scene of it being of Agamemnon, like getting a report and being like, is everyone here? And someone being like Odysseus hasn't showed up yet and him being mad would have like fixed that because then it would be obvious that Odysseus has avoided the summons. It's just not that clear. And the whole thing with like, so what happens is Odysseus doesn't want to come. So he pretends to have gone insane. And the guy who shows up is like, he's like, he's incessantly plowing a field and he's like, well, cool. If you're actually insane, I am going to throw your infant child down in front of the oxen and if you're really insane, you won't stop because you, you're, he's insensate. But of course, he is still sane. He's just pretending to madness. And so he stops and is therefore revealed and is forced to go to Troy. Two things about this. First of all, who is the baby supposed to be? Yes, that irritated me. Because- that made me really angry because... So- Later, we see him saying goodbye to, like, an eight-year-old child who is named as Telemachus, but the baby is supposed to be Telemachus. Yeah. Like, there's in, Telemachus and a baby. Yeah. In in the Odyssey, it's, like, a whole thing that Telemachus is his only child and is a babe in arms when he leaves for Troy and has never known his father. Like, there's kind of a whole thing about how, you know, when Odysseus shows up, Telemachus doesn't recognize him because he's never met his father. That's a major thing in the Odyssey. It's a huge theme, recognition and and unrecognition. And them deciding that Telemachus is just going to be, like, older. Yeah, it doesn't make sense why they do that at all for any reason. The one thing that I did like about this scene is that it does establish that Odysseus does deeply care about his family but he doesn't get a sh- give a shit about anybody else like he is tactical man who is like completely cold and logical in most other situations but that he does actually care very deeply about his family which i think is really important to odysseus's character yeah i wish they had cut all of the other stuff that i hated in all the other episodes and then expanded more i think that probably would have made sense because yeah. there's a lot of stuff in here that i hate and that yeah. they shouldn't have put in here. Yeah. Like almost every scene with Helen in Paris. Yeah. It's just like none of this was necessary. Yeah. Anyways, Odysseus is good. 
his character is pretty well done and is one of the only redeeming features of the show. Yes. Unlike Achilles, who has no personality. Sorry, I need oh to come gosh. back to this for a second. I'm still so angry. The fact that they decided that, like, he is inexplicably... The only character traits he has are, like, stoic and likes violence and also is a rapist. And they managed to make it racist. much of this casting where it's just like they tried to be like diversity and instead they just made it racist. Yeah, this is the thing is like I hate to break it to the casting director of this but like casting Achilles as a black man is only interesting and revolutionary if he is like actually kind of one of the main characters and has a whole personality. Having him be scary, intimidating, violent towards white women and like, just violent in general, is actually just a racist stereotype of black men. Speaking of violence towards white women, let's talk about how Artemis is black and calls for the death of um, an innocent white girl. Yeah, she's also, like, she's, so she's obviously uh, presumably, like, African-British. I don't know. I didn't look up the actress, I'll be honest. Um, But she's black. And, but she's also, like, I guess albino. Yeah. Which is also, like, a fun, shitty stereotype of albino people that they are, like, scary. I, like, uh, I don't know. I've seen so uh, many things where, like, the albino person is, like, scary and bad. Like, albino people are actually just human beings. Uh, I, big shocker. Turns out the amount of pigment you have in your body does not actually affect whether or not you are a good person. Yeah, both. And that goes for all of this fucking racism and the weird like shittiness towards albino people for no reason yeah i mean i just the fact that they could have cast somebody of they could have not cast a black person to murder a young white innocent girl who is specifically framed as the young innocent girl it's like what did you think for one second about this. Yeah, and they also could have not cast a black person to threaten to rape a white woman. Yep. Mm-hmm. So also another thing that was just a really bad decision was in episode three when um, Hector and Paris are going through the woods on their horses and there's basically just a fucking scene of people who have just been like lynched. Like there are these bodies hanging from the trees. I was like, really? Did you want to go with lynching imagery here? After all the shitty racist stuff you've already done, you thought, hmm, let's go with the lynching imagery. And it's too, it's so modern because they have this, they specifically show this very modern looking noose around this person's neck. It's just like, there are so many ways you can show like dead bodies. And you've done all of these other shots of people being murdered in these horrible ways by the Greek soldiers in order to frighten off the, any Trojans who try to come outside the walls. But it's like, you went with the lynching imagery. Yeah, it's... If they got one thing right in this show, like someone working on this show read the Iliad and was like, oh, Homer thinks war is bad. Like, they got that one right. If anybody else has ever read the Iliad, like, as it turns out, Homer thinks war is bad. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Like, actually, all of the violence in the Iliad, it's the way it is and so much of the framing of it is, like, war is a tragedy. All of these young men dying before they get to have lives, like, it's a horrible tragedy. And so much of what happens to Achilles and Patroclus is, like, an elevated example of that exact thing. The laments after Patroclus' death, including Achilles's, are very much like, you were supposed to have a future and now you're dead because of this war. Which is stupid in the first place. Yeah, like um. it's very, and, and Achilles himself um, during the period where he's not fighting is like, you know, g- good men who go out and do stuff die just the same as people who don't risk their lives and die in stupid ways. Like, it's a thing that he expresses. Yeah. And it's very, like, it's very much the ethos of the Iliad that all of this death and suffering is really unnecessary. And so they did get that one right. And and they they got it right that it is bloody and horrible and violent. And everyone is kind of disturbed by it. I will say something about the the gory violence in this, though, and that 
I don't mind that it's gory because like there are very graphic descriptions of violence in war in ancient texts. There's a this Oh, I feel like I'm going to have to trigger warning this because what I'm going to say is about to be really graphic. So if you don't want to hear about like a horrible graphic thing, skip over this bit. Skip forward about 25 seconds. There is this particular bit in Tacitus, who's a Roman historian, um, and he's there's this bit where he's writing about this war and he's writing about this like dead soldier who's like, or he's like this dying soldier who's stuck under the bodies of a bunch of other dying soldiers and they're like still trying to kill each other and it's just fucking awful but it's like he's trying to describe how bad war is because war is like pretty bad um but i wish like there is a scene here where you see somebody who um so like achilles like throws a spear and it goes like straight through somebody's head super gory they focus on in on him dying in a super gory yeah, way you get this like lingering like sound of him like choking on yeah. his own blood as he falls to his knees which is very much in line with the kind of stuff that gets described in homer yeah and i i wish they would have drawn a little bit more specifically from something like specifically homeric and especially scenes of like for example people being like thrown down and killed like in the midst in like the midst of battle which this doesn't happen so much and also like being stripped of their armor and stuff because that's really important like that you take spoils off of like particular people who are really important um if you're like an important person or if you're not an important person you just loot uh, yeah. people's dead bodies yeah i this is the thing is like they got the core ethos of like homeric combat description which is that war is gory and bad but they didn't bother to preserve any of the interesting details of it that actually create the horror as it exists in homer like the the tug of war over people's bodies and the the particular ways that people die in homer it's often very like there's a lot of emphasis on things like the thud of bodies falling to the ground mm. and you know, also just stuff that's specific to the way people fought back then, like being impaled by spears and, and so on and so forth. Or being like dragged off your horse or something. Yeah, or out of um, the Or trampled. Yeah. Or, yeah, and I, yeah, you articulated that very well. That was what I was, like, had sort of sitting in my head as like a soup, and you put it into words. So thank You're you. You're welcome. The other thing that they do pretty well as far as like their warfare depiction, I'll say this, is that like, the, the focus that they have on, like, the logistics of war and of siege that, that so much of episode three is all about the fact that, like, the city of Troy is under siege and they're running out of food and they need to, like, dig this tunnel so that they don't starve to death and then the Greeks will just run in and kill them all. Like, that's actually, you know, that's important stuff and it's interesting. And this idea that, like, when Agamemnon shows up and is like, we're just going to overrun them in a day. And obviously that doesn't happen. But like, you see the kind of strategy of war and the things that happen that are not just men fighting on the battlefield, which is, is an interesting thing to portray. And it's an interesting source of tension. There were other directions they could have gone. Obviously, there's like other things that they could have done if they had decided to not portray that stuff as much and instead focus, for example, more on like the gods and fate stuff or mm -hmm. to do more character development. I don't think this was a bad choice. Like it's not an invalid no. way to tell the story. And I think mostly what I wish about this is just that it was done in a more interesting way. Like the actual like core approach is totally fine. It's just that the writing's not particularly interesting. And it sort of draws more generally from like things about war that are bad as opposed to like specific stuff in the Iliad. And the Iliad is a text that has survived for 2000 years because it's interesting. Yeah. And so it's nice when you draw out the interesting and specific things from the Iliad. Something I wish that the show had like elaborated a little bit on is like how, how much of a big of a deal the decision to go to war for the Trojans is and like what the consequences are of losing. I don't think modern peoples understand this very well because our experiences with war are all about sending troops overseas in an incredibly colonial and gross manner. But like if we lose those wars, there's no real consequences for us. Whereas 
when you are the person being attacked, the consequence for you if you lose is that um, your cities get destroyed, all of the men typically get murdered, um, and all of the boys get murdered, and then usually the women and girls get sexually assaulted um, and carried off as slaves. Like, it's literally the worst thing you could imagine happening to you. So their Priam's decision to fight is a big decision because if he loses, like he's essentially destroying his city and his people. He's dooming everybody to like the worst imaginable fate. Yeah, like this isn't, oh, they're going to conquer them and just like take over the city and like use it as a colony and use their resources the way that like you know, the American invasion of the Middle East where them, like, winning those fights basically just means them installing themselves or whoever they want in power so that they can exploit the resources of the territory. Like, no, no. The city will be destroyed. There will be nothing left. Their people will be completely dissipated. They will lose their entire culture, all of their... Like, it'll all be gone. Everything will be gone. I cannot understate the degree to which... And, like... This was a tragedy in the classical sense. There are a lot of Greek tragedies that follow Homer that are about the aftermath of the Trojan War and what happens to the Trojans and their kind of remnants. And also what happens to the Greeks? What happens the horrible price for the winning side as yeah, well? Yeah, like, <laughs> I, 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 again, Agamemnon dies. <laughs> Achilles dies. Achilles dies at the end of the war. Spoilers. Um, Achilles dies. Uh, I don't know if you've heard this about him, but famously, he dies. Um, Patroclus dies. Uh, Most of the soldiers die. Odysseus, every man that Odysseus brings with him to Troy, except for him, dies. Yep. Um, And, like, the Trojans... Listen, the classical Greeks were extremely racist and xenophobic. They really did not like valorizing anybody except for themselves. But there are certain losses that for like the people they were fighting against that even they recognized as tragedies. Euripides did multiple plays about the fate of the Trojan women. Like there are Hecuba, the Trojan women, and Andromache are the title of these three three plays in particular that are very much about like the fates of the women after the war. Like Andromache is, in my opinion, one of the most underrated Euripides plays, and it is about what happens to Hector's wife. She gets married off to Achilles' son. (laughs) Or like, I mean, married off is strong. She gets taken as a slave by Achilles' son. Yeah. Achilles who killed her husband. Like, her fate is horrible. I mean, the the thing is, is like, the Iliad as well is super sympathetic to this. Because they have a whole scene in book six of the Iliad where Andromache totally foreshadows this. She tells Hector that they should, like, just, like surrender he should stay here with her because like when she when like the city gets invaded like she's like i am going to be carried off as a slave like um and my child is going to be murdered and that's exactly what happens her child her baby is murdered in a brutal fashion and she becomes a slave um and yeah no there's the iliad is really sympathetic to the trojans um in in certain aspects like it's clear that it's bad for everybody (laughs) Yeah. God, I just, I don't remember how we got onto this topic, but suffice to say, war is bad. And uh, everything that happens in the aftermath of it is also bad. God, you th- you would have thought that humans could have figured out how not to have war when 2,800 years ago, somebody was like, guys, war is bad. And everybody was like, yeah, war is bad. But no, we just keep deciding that war is like a super great idea because of like people's personal egos. And that is how we got started on this is Priam decides to go to war anyways. That, oh, Jesus. They knew that it could be bad. They had to have known that. And they do it anyways. And they just don't, they don't talk enough about the fear of the cost of losing. Yeah. I also dislike that it's 
they don't even mention the other possible political reasons for going to war because it's like in the in the Iliad like it is about Helen but it's also like kind of not about Helen I don't know if I'm like wrong in saying that I don't know I'm not an Iliad scholar but like I don't know I mean they talk about it in the show that the Greeks show up and are like give us Helen back and also in response to this insult of your son stealing one of our king's wives you have to pay us and also give us access to your trade routes but I mean they do talk about that like the the Greeks like even if Helen hadn't been stolen, like this is a great political opportunity for them to get a bunch of territory, which I think Hecuba does actually point out at one point. She's like, mm-hmm. if you, I think she said, I think it's her saying this to Helen. She's like, if you leave, like they're still going to come fight. And so that like sort of framing all of this around Helen is kind of like, yeah, it's sort of about Helen. But at this point, like it's kind of not really about Helen anymore. It's about, oh, we're like, gonna kill each other now because we decided that that's what we want to do for like political reasons yeah we came all the way here with our armies so we're gonna fight a war yeah yeah they would have found a reason to fight the war and i mean i don't think that that's not something that the show talks about like i think that is something that the show addresses yeah they could address it more like they could spend more time with it I think one of the reasons that it doesn't happen is because we just aren't getting, we're not getting as much of the Greek perspective. Like we're mostly getting, as far as motivations and like that kind of thing, we're mostly getting the Trojan perspective. And what they are seeing is that it doesn't really matter to them why the Greeks are invading. The Greeks are invading. Yeah. If we were spending more time with more of the Greek characters, like if this were centered around the Greek point of view more, and we were getting not just Menelaus, who just wants his wife back, and Agamemnon, who's now been obliged by the sacrifice. But I mean, before that, like what was Agamemnon's motivation? What was, what? why is Achilles here besides apparently the fact that he wants to fuck Helen? I... <laughs> kill me it makes me so angry why you know why is Odysseus here why did Odysseus not want to come and why did he like you know why is it such a big deal that they obliged him why is Nestor here like we haven't talked about Nestor at all I'm glad they cast him as black so that we have at least one black character who is not just a disgusting stereotype shout out to Nestor yeah uh we Um, we love Nestor yeah, uh, we do love Nestor. He's, like, the only good Greek king. He's, like, uh, a nice grandpa. Yeah, and, and, like, I mean, Diomedes maybe gets a pass. To be fair, Diomedes is, like, one of the best in the Iliad. He's a badass, and he is, like, not recognized enough. Wow, are you a secret Diomedes stan? I think everyone who studies the Iliad is a secret Diomedes stan. He has a really cool Aristea, which... Yes. For the layman is when a hero goes on a big rampage and kills a bunch of people and just generally is badass and gets to like have a cool moment. He has a very cool one of those and is generally like, I don't know, he's like reliable. Yeah. He's not a big, he's not like a big standout hero, like, you know, somebody like Achilles or even like Ajax, but I don't know. He's a bro. Um, (laughs) But, like, we have no idea why he's here other than apparently, again, like, he got beat supposedly in a fight by Agamemnon for Helen, and now mm-hmm. he has to be here. Again, this isn't something that they talked about at all. It, it, the oath, in particular. Anyways, it's really stupid, and we don't get that perspective. Mm-hmm. But if we were getting that perspective, then, yeah, I think we would be having more understanding of, like, why are they going to war other than just it being about Helen. Yes. Another thing that I don't like is they kind of frame this a little bit as like, oh, if if Priam had just not made some bad decisions, then this could have all been avoided. Like there's a point where the this priest is talking to Hector in the third episode and he's like, Paris cannot be here because Paris will cause like all of these terrible things and Paris needs to leave. And it really frames like, Priam is like in open defiance of the gods but like the whole point of the Iliad is that entire civilizations are at the whims of the gods 
that like nobody has any control here. This giant war happens because three goddesses get in a spat about who's the sexiest. Yeah. And like like, they do cool stuff with the gods in this show. There's a scene where the goddesses are like walking amongst the troops, blessing individuals, which slaps. It did slap. That scene absolutely slaps. Aside from the fact that like none of them are wearing any clothing for whatever reason, but we don't need to talk about that. I mean, we do, but not right now. But yeah, like I, that sort of stuff is cool. But yeah, I think like the fate stuff is really like everything to do with like fate and predestination is poorly handled. Oh yeah. And like, that is one of the most interesting parts of like the Iliad and a lot of Greek tragedies is people trying to deal with the fact that there are certain things in their lives they have no control over. Um, that they're that are at like the whims of the gods essentially, but I mean the gods here are like really sort of a, like a stand-in for anything that we can't control, and it's just how ancient peoples mediated that was through gods, and I mean obviously how some modern people still mediate stuff, but it was in sort of a way that a lot of like modern peoples aren't really familiar with, especially like people in like America and in Europe aren't really yeah. familiar with this idea of like oh, we have these, like, crazy divine beings that we kind of have to, like, deal with. Like, we're not worshipping them because they're great. We're worshipping them because if we don't worship them, we're going to be fucked. (laughs) Yeah. I think that... I'm going to talk about Achilles some more. Um, Okay, go off. This is a... This is... But, like, Achilles is a really good example of this because one of the things that, like, giving him no personality causes them to leave out is that, like, the reason Achilles comes to Troy is that he has been like first and foremost even above the oath i i would argue is that he is aware he uh, that it's kind of prophesied that he is either going to go to troy and die young and gloriously and live on forever in everyone's memory or he will not go to troy and he will live a long mediocre life and die in his bed as an old man and presumably like be happy for his life but like he he'll be forgotten and that is like Here's the thing about that. You can read it in two ways. You can read it as the pressures of a culture in which a person is brought up, because that's what it is. It's it's what I kind of refer to in, in my dissertation as kleos culture, which is kleos is the Greek term for like glory in the sense of like reputation, as in the things that people say about you as your your legacy. And that's a major thing for the Greeks and for Greek heroes. And that culture exerts a pressure to die young and gloriously. So you can read this prophecy that Achilles will either die young and gloriously and be remembered forever or live a long, happy life and be forgotten as just like kind of a metaphor for the culture and like what it means to be a hero in that culture. Or you can read it literally as a prophecy as like you know he you know he's been told this by the gods specifically by his mother who's a goddess but because they are kind of unwilling to talk about fate except for in the context of paris being like helen i was promised helen it's always going to be this way and also the whole like priam should have you know i don't know murdered paris in his crib or whatever also cassandra yeah also i mean i don't know they sort of continue to do a bad job with cassandra I don't even really want to talk about it. <laughs> there was nothing interesting. No, in these no, episodes. it was just still bad. But so instead, because they don't want to talk about fate, they have to kind of introduce this aspect of his character in another way, which it appears in that towards the end of episode three, when he's with Helen and she like manipulates him into leaving her in the city and going away to continue to fight by telling him, uh, and I quote, it's better to die with honor than to live in shame, which is like the same concept essentially articulated slightly differently that like it's better to die gloriously than to live quietly and be forgotten. And that is the thing that drives Achilles fundamentally, that he wants to be a hero, that he wants the, the Kleos, at least for the time being at the start of the Iliad, that's what he wants. He ultimately decides that it's not worth it. After Patroclus's death, he's like, this this was bullshit. I shouldn't have done this. This, like, none of this was worth it. And 
in the Odyssey, Odysseus meets his ghost and his ghost expresses the same thing that he would much rather have, like, he'd rather have lived as like a serf, as like a peasant, than to have died so young and so unhappy in the way that he did. And that dilemma is so central to his character. And unfortunately, it gets turned into this kind of milquetoast, like, like shame thing. Yeah. Which isn't what it is. And it's much less interesting than what it actually is because they don't want to talk about fate. Which is so, yeah. Which to me doesn't make any sense. But to be fair, not a lot about this show makes sense. The decisions are kind of baffling in many ways. Yep. So, I mean, I don't know. I think we can kind of wrap it up there. This show is baffling. Uh, and probably you shouldn't watch it. <laughs> yeah. I think we said this last episode, uh, don't watch this show. Thanks for listening to Classically Trained. This podcast is hosted and produced by Allison Marlin and Julia Peroni on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. You can listen and subscribe to this podcast on our website, classicallytrainedpod.podbean.com, and anywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to reach us, we can be emailed at classicallytrainedpod at gmail.com, contacted via Twitter at classicallypod, or you can leave a review. Finally, some acknowledgments. We'd first like to thank Nicholas Judy and Dark Fantasy Studio, who produced our wonderful music. We would also like to thank the Society for Classical Studies for their help in supporting this podcast. Our next episode in two weeks will be the third of four on Troy, Fall of a City. Until then, as always, be well and do not, under any circumstances, do as the Romans did.